Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. The value of a multifamily property is essentially, if we boil it down and dumb it down, it's, it's based off two things, right? It's based off net operating income. Mm-hmm. So rents minus expenses. What's left is net operating income divided by the cap rate, right? So what's, the, what's that, that percentage cap rate that people are paying for in the market? That's essentially what, what, what a, a property is ba- what the value is based off. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Nikolai Ray, and Nikolai is the founder and CEO of MREX. He's regarded as one of North America's leading experts in apartment investing with over a billion in Canadian, Canadian in analysis and transactions. He's a leading expert in multifamily financial engineering, and he's often called upon to stand in as a teacher, advisor, and speaker. He's also a real estate technology pioneer with his current work on multifamily real estate property tokenization with blockchain. Man, Nikolai, so Nikolai, so happy to have you today. I think there's a ton to unpack. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a mouthful, doesn't it? And it's like, that's all like kind of old stuff. I think I think one billion was probably like five years ago. <laughs> oh man, you got to update your bio. I know. <laughs> too busy. <laughs> You're too busy, right? No, yeah. I mean, I think there's a wealth of, of things that we can unpack today. So I'm really excited to talk. I mean, I think just talking about, I think letting, you know, explaining to our audience some of the ways that, that you in a very advanced way, look at deals and how you analyze deals and giving some insights into where, you know, where things can get tricky, tricky, where things can go wrong, where maybe some of the benchmarks and some of the common things that we're used to maybe aren't the way we should really be looking at things. I think really excited to to dive in. But before we do that, let's start at the top. Tell the audience, you know, where you came from and and how you got to where you are today. Well, it's, uh, I'll try to make it pretty short because it's actually quite a long story, but I was uh, born in Quebec City and in Canada, obviously in the French speaking part of uh, Canada, but I left uh, with my parents when I was uh, just about a year old and ended up growing in the growing up in Los Angeles in California. So I spent my childhood in LA, I uh, was a Valley boy, you know, learned some Chicano. So I speak English, French and Chicano um, <laughs> and uh, essentially uh, came back to Canada in my in my teens, 
I uh, became a professional hockey player um, and then uh, also completed my education in uh, exercise science and preventive medicine um, and uh, went to the Olympics three times as a human performance specialist. And throughout that, obviously, I have a very strong mathematical background being in biomechanics in, in preventive medicine. And I always had this knack for, for obviously for math and for numbers and always loved real estate and thought that real estate was a great way, number one, for for me to uh, really express my mathematical uh, prowess, but at the same time, you know, create a bigger a bigger dent on the universe and a, and a bigger impact on society than what I was just doing in the sports field. So, mm-hmm. around my my mid to, to late twenties, I decided to actually completely leave my career of high performance and, and preventive medicine, even though I was at the top of my of my game at that moment, uh, literally as as uh, you know as a uh, one of the coaches for the human for the Canadian Olympic teams. And uh, went into real estate, started a uh, real estate investment firm, essentially was a a boutique investment banking firm specialized in real estate. And within a couple of years, we scaled that to $100 billion in transactions a year, Uh, ended up selling that business, Uh, went on to do some consulting work for family offices as their real estate arm, Uh, consulting work with syndicators, uh, private equity firms, uh, real estate investment trusts and all that stuff. And ended up, uh, I guess, four or five years ago now, founding MREX and MREX College. Uh, MREX being a technology company where we're essentially building the equivalent of the Bloomberg Terminal, but for everyday real estate, real estate investors. So retail investors, mom and pop investors, passive investors, uh, obviously syndicators. And we've also built a college where what we do is essentially we, we bring very specific uh, knowledge and, and, and frameworks to retail investors. So the idea is to kind of give you a Harvard level education, specifically in multifamily investing, even though you are not in the Ivy Leagues, or maybe you're now a professional investor, or maybe you're a doctor and you just want to learn a bit more about investing. So I felt like there was a big, a big right. gap to fill between the whole industry of, of conferences and seminars and, you know, what we, what a lot of people will call gurus or mentors or coaches. And then the whole kind of college and university universe, which is much more uh, built to, to, to build, for example, investment bankers and lawyers and stuff like that. But I felt like there was something missing in that gap there for, for just everyday retail investors who want to learn how to become a better real estate investor. So um, that's essentially what I've been doing for the last five years. Obviously my, my specialty is really in, in multifamily real estate financial engineering. And, you know, I've worked on pretty much every single side of the, of, of the game from, you know, active investing to helping passive investors, uh, ground up development to, you know, complete uh, redevelopment and just, optimization just that. of, just of that, actual right? existing multifamily properties. No, that's, and, uh, that, yeah, that's, that's an that, incredible that's story. And, and I, I didn't I even realize all that about your background and, and the whole history. Yeah, of just that. So uh, thanks for sharing that. And, um, you know, and, and something that you said, I mean, it really strikes a chord with me, this idea of um, th- this la- lack of really an education source for people that want to be real estate investors, right? Like, I mean, my personal experience, I was a, I was a finance and econ major in college. I right. even took a real estate finance class right. in college. Um, yeah, but but it didn't really teach me uh, any, like nothing I learned in that yeah. class would I say, am I really, that's a great, that's a great base. Hey, everything, everything like has been self-taught. 
right? And so like there really isn't that avenue in a university to learn how to really successfully invest right. in real estate. Because right. even my real estate finance class right. was like, if you were like working for a large corporation that invested in real estate, right? Right. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're building people that, Right. You're building. It's very, very. It's, it's you're building folks that want to go work in, in a large organization and be right. Appraisers, you know, not 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 investors. So, so, right, right, exactly. It doesn't give you that mindset of an investor, and that's kind of, and and that's all fine and dandy, right? I mean, you know, universities and colleges have their their own specific vocation, and I think it's important. I think a, a college education can really help. Uh, but you know, I think we have to keep yeah. in mind that That's obviously right. people That's who right. are teaching it. Well, I like, I mean, I think it, I hope that, I mean, I often for the talk most on this part, show, not active, even though it's a passive investment, investment, like you've got to be active in it. You've got to educate yourself. And I think that, you know, it sounds like you're providing an opportunity for people to do that, which I hope makes more accessible for folks. Hopefully you remove some of that fear factor right. of jumping into real estate with a better understanding and hopefully allows more people to get involved in real estate investing. Um, and all the benefits it, it can have right. in your life, right? And everything that everything it's done for me. So I'm always a proponent of trying to get as many people to invest in real estate as possible because I think it can be life changing. Absolutely. Yes. Of mm-hmm. course, I, I think the the democratization yeah. of real estate is a very important factor because, I mean, I grew up poor. I grew up poor in the ghetto, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, in, in a ghetto in Los Angeles, and uh, <laughs> my my parents were artists. You know, bohemian artist. My dad was a jazz musician, touring blues jazz musician, which essentially means he was dirt poor. And my mom was a theater actress, so essentially was a waitress, right? <laughs> like every actress in, in LA. So I and and you know all all the research that exists in the world on on you know climbing the social ladder and and social mobility yep. and equal access to opportunity. Uh, you know, two things always come out, and and that's education, obviously, access to education. Yeah. And the other thing is, is actually right. real estate. And there have been some really interesting studies done, especially on like the favelas in, in Brazil, which are just the Portuguese word for ghetto, right? And uh, uh, the moment that they started allowing the people who had been living there to actually become owners of where they're living, because mm-hmm. favelas were always government owned, um, you started seeing people for the first time actually climb out of these essentially shanty towns and be able to you know, pretty much change their, 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 go up the social ladder. So I think democratization of real estate and that's what the mission of emrex is through technology and through education yeah. is to do that to be able to say hey you know real estate's always been a very you know kind of closed off uh, big boys club uh which you know even for like even for say a uh, an accredited investor who say is a is a surgeon even for that person accessing for example right. the multifamily real estate investment market yeah and the great returns that it offers in relation to the very little risk that that pertains in that market, you've, you've got to really to know deal, somebody, right? it's, it's, it's and, and or you've got to you've got to really do your homework to find to people, and then, and then if somebody you're just finding randomly, you've got to do your work so, to build trust, right? So it's right, and you got to understand what you're doing, right? And then you have to understand the market. You know, the multifamily mm-hmm. market is a very and when I talk about multifamily, obviously that's my 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 prime business but obviously we could talk about commercial and mixed use and whatever but essentially uh, when we talk about the the overall umbrella of commercial real estate it's a very different Absolutely. type of investment class where you know it it 
in part resembles the fixed income class of, of, of bonds and obligations. That's right. But at the same token, it also right. has resemblances. You're to, getting, you're getting to, your to, share of the, the profits in the business and, and as an owner, right? So it, it really, because essentially you know, what you're saying, which I totally business, believe, right? it's it's about, it could be the best of both worlds, right? right? You have to have the best aspects of both. You have the steady right. cash flow. If you, yes, yes, exactly. So, Absolutely. no, I, I love that, Nikolai. I think that's a really it can also good. Be the worst of both worlds, if you know. Really good kind of lay of the land. I think the explanation very fascinating about just the research around real estate being that you know one of the common denominators to help people you know climb to that that next social class, that socioeconomic level. Um, something else that that you said that I thought was really inter- interesting. I want to dig into a little bit more is this idea of multifamily financial yeah. engineering. I mean, that, that sounds like, it sounds like underwriting, like on steroids, right? So, so, so tell us a little more about that. What do you mean yeah. by that? Pretty much. Yeah. Well, what I mean by multifamily financial engineering is, is essentially, I mean, financial engineering obviously is, is a, it looks like this very kind of Uh, Mm -hmm. big thing a lot of people get very fearful when they hear about it but essentially underwriting is just one part of real estate financial engineering right so financial engineering is essentially playing around with numbers playing around with projections playing around with all these different tools mathematical tools uh you know financial economics to be Mm -hmm. able to 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 mitigate risk to try and generate alpha so so we're talking about like jensen's alpha trying to generate actual better returns by taking about the same amount of risk so financial engineering mm-hmm. allows you to play with, with, with different types of capital stacks, different levels of capital stacks, you know, using different types of debts and levers and all these things, and really use a mathematical and analytical base to invest in real estate. And I think, number one, financial engineering is, is probably the most important tool an active investor can use today, just because, I mean, let's face it, the market today is, is much tighter than it had been in the past, because it's gotten much more sophisticated, right? right. Investors today, syndicators. I mean, that's prior to right. 2012 right. and the Jobs Act, syndicating was not a word. Like no one really talked about syndicating. Now everyone and their mother is a syndicator. <laughs> well, right? Everybody has 1% of it. I mean, everyone, uh, I mean, if you, if you go on Facebook, it seems like everyone has 8,000 units now, right? Uh, out of the blue. Right, exactly. Or 0.1%, which is fine. I mean, whatever. Um, whatever rocks everyone's boats. But I mean, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that now everyone's in the game. Interest rates have really uh, bottomed out. Uh, cap rates have compressed. And we're just in a different type of economy than we're, than what we had ever been in. And multifamily real estate and commercial real estate, but Absolutely. especially multifamily, has gone from a mom and pop investment class to a sophisticated investment class. So if you're working in a sophisticated mm-hmm. investment class, you have to have the proper tools to know what you're doing and to make the proper investments because the market is much more competitive now. I mean, if you're a mom and pop investor, let's say I start right. out investing tomorrow morning, I want to buy my first 24 right. unit property. I have to compete against some pretty, pretty uh, heavy, heavy duty uh, opposition, right? So, so I think you need that. And then as a passive investor, I think you need to understand financial engineering to understand what's being presented to you as a passive investor, right? Because right. now we have all these syndications. Obviously, syndications are not really, I mean, the it's not like a public company, like nothing's audited and no one's really combing through all these operating memorandums and stuff like that. So 
as a passive investor, yes, you're passive operational wise, meaning that you're not managing the property and the acquisitions, you're put, just putting your deal into a, essentially a fund or, or a syndication. But you have to yeah. understand what is being done in these projections and the modeling to understand, you know, what you're really investing in, you know, because, for example, I mean, I, I see this all the time. You, know, you see these syndicators like, oh, we're generating 18% IRR, 22% IRR, okay? You know, internal rate of return is like the easiest yeah. metric to doctor. It's so easy. Like I can toggle one or two things and completely change the IRR of a project. But essentially, it means nothing. Like yes. it, it doesn't really mean anything in the project. So if you don't understand what are the inputs that are underlying that output and how they're affecting them as a passive investor. I mean, a very simple way to understand that is, you know, the first thing that you can do as a passive investor is go and look in the modeling of the, of the syndicator, or the GP, or, or, I mean, right. we can even get a, a higher level of a, of a, of a REIT and go and look at, okay, what, what is the IR based off? Is it based off an exit? So a disposition of the assets, selling the assets in five or 10 years, which right. is pretty common practice in, in, in modeling, or is it based off a refinance? So uh, if it's a value add de deal, maybe they're going to refinance and pull you out, which is, I mean, it's a liquidity right. event, like, like a disposition, like a, like a sale. So that's the number one thing. And then you want to look at is what's that terminal value? What's it based off? So for example, if it's based off a, a projection that cap rates are going to be 3%, um, I, and the, and the internal rate of return on the project is 18%. Right. I, I'd be very weary as an, as a passive right. investor to invest in that. One deal. of the I'd things that asking some that, very uh, serious struck questions struck me how, as I really started. That, so that, I, that, that one, I love what you're saying. That, so, that you know, I was a consultant in my previous life and, and I always thought about things as you've got to understand at a basic level, like what are, what are the different levers that exist and, and what, what are the outcomes that happen when you pull these levers? You know, when you move it up, up or down, what, then what happens, right. right? What's the outcome that occurs, right? And so that's what you're talking about right now. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you don't need a PhD in, in, in finance to do this. I mean, it's, it, well, and what I was going to say is the, the thing that really about, struck me about kind of, IRR you know, is over when the top I realized heavy, this but it, and really it's started that, to understand You know, we can boil it down in a very simple way. You know, one of the one of the easiest ways to to juice your IRR is, is actually pay more for the property, which lowers your ingoing cap rate, which will uh, in turn lower the cap rate on your exit which will improve your IRRs th throughout the project. So it's like, well, right. you want to raise your IRR. In some cases, you could just pay a little more for the property. So just showing one right. kind of extreme example of how it can be right. manipulated. Right. Um, Absolutely. And I, that's funny because I actually, I hosted a webinar mm -hmm. Uh, last week um, on yes. on the the four critical mistakes of of, of what investors do right. with regards to determining exit cap rates or reversion cap rates, and that's one of them is basing your cap rate mm -hmm. off your acquisition cap rate because what a lot of people do is they'll take their acquisition cap yeah. rate and say, well, I'll just expand that cap rate, so I'll add on to it, say uh, you know mm -hmm. uh, five basis points a year. So let's say if you purchase at a five cap rate. That means in five years, your exit cap rate would be 5.25%, right? That's right. But that's right. the problem with that is like you just said, like that's that's so biased to 
the price that you paid right. for the property, right? Number one. And number two, if it's a value add deal, the cap rate upon acquisition means absolutely right. nothing. It means nothing. Because a right. cap rate is a metric right. based exactly. on and, and a cap stable rate is cash a, flows is really like a market level metric. A value add right? deal your your cap rate is driven not. by the market. Um, which is which can be completely disconnected from what you decide to actually pay for the property and the cap rate that you actually pay. It could be a five and a half cap market. You're overpaying for the property. You're paying a five cap for the property. Right. And therefore that, right. that impacts everything you're saying. It impacts if you're expanding what your reversion cap rate ends up being. And you're just, yep. you're just over projecting, you know, in everything because you, you've overpaid from the outset. So yeah, I appreciate that. Right. And there's, another, and there's another interesting point in that. And this, this pertains not just to cap rates, but to pretty much everything in real estate investing with regards to like metrics and, and, and data and all that stuff, mm -hmm. stats. And I, I think like if, if anyone's, anyone who's watching this right now, this is just like the key takeaway of this 30 minute discussion is just remember this. This is an old fable. I don't know where it comes from, if it's an Aesop's fable or whatnot, but um, <laughs> it, it's the story of the six foot man who drowned right, right. in the lake that was five foot and average deep, right? So you have to be careful right. when you talk about averages, right? Because right, yeah. a lake could, you could have a, a body of water that an average, exactly, it, it's five foot deep, but that doesn't mean that it's yeah, five it's foot everywhere. Yeah, it's 15 feet over right? here and it's two well, feet over here. The man can still yeah. drown in that, in that body of water, yeah. even though the average depth is five feet. And that, right, <laughs> right, exactly. One foot over there and, that 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 is really important to understand in statistics and data. Yeah, and Indianapolis. Because, for example, everyone talks about a cap rate. What's the cap rate in uh, in in Dallas? Or what's the cap rate? And I think you're you're from Indiana, right? Uh, yeah, Indianapolis. So what's the cap rate in Indianapolis? Yeah. It's five percent. Yeah, but that's the average. Like the cap rates in Indianapolis are probably that's like right. between four point right. thirty and five point sixty. And then there's That's a whole right. bunch no, of different I, factors affecting man, I, I love it. I mean, we could nerd out on all range, these metrics all right? day because so that, kindred that spirit that's here. Extremely dangerous as well. Let's um let's hit some highlights for folks. I think we we could go real deep, <laughs> right? But what what are some what are those key if you think about those levers that that make or break a deal or an analysis, what are some of those keys? We yep. talked about cap rate, but like what are some of those other ones that people really need to pay attention to and maybe often yep. get wrong? Yep. Well, I, and, I, and I hope this is, is waking up a lot of passive investors to understand that even though they're passive, they can't be passive in their education. Like, That's right. In fact, being a passive investor, you should probably even be more educated or try to be more educated than the people who are the active investors because, I mean, what's the best way to get screwed by someone is being dumber than the, than the guy <laughs> trying to screw you, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah. the, the levers where you can really play around with things, obviously, I mean, Underwriting, which is a part of financial engineering, is is obviously the amount of debt that you're using and the, and the overall weighted average cost of, of, of that capital of that debt is mm -hmm. something that can completely change a model, number one. So, uh, right, because in, it, internal rate of return and NPV, and that's another thing, internal rate of return should always be accompanied by NPV, net present value. They, they go together, they're brother and sister. So if right. you're just talking about IRR in and alone itself, you're kind of missing part of like, that's kind of like just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. So I think to keep in mind, NPV is something very interesting, very important because 
obviously the less amount of money I put into a deal, the easier it is to, to drive up my internal rate of return, right? Right. Yeah. So, so explain real quick what NPV is for folks. NPV is net present value. So let's say, uh, um, let's say I, uh, I'm putting in a hundred thousand dollars into a, into a deal and I'm expecting a 12% return. Well, if my NPV is at zero, that means I'm getting my 12% return, right? And mm-hmm. my internal rate of return would essentially be 12% because mm-hmm. internal rate of return is essentially a metric that just says this is the return needed to make sure that your NPV is at zero, right? So uh, if I have an NPV of, which is positive, which is say, uh, let's say it's, it's $200,000, well, that means I'm, I'm, I'm getting the return that I, I'm asking for plus $200,000 on top of that. So that, that's an important thing to consider. And in all these metrics, NPV, internal rate of return, um, return on equity, which is another one that's really, or equity multiple, which yep. is a very popular one in the syndication world, yep. uh, which is essentially if I'm, you know, if I'm getting, if I'm putting in $100,000 and $200,000 comes back in five years, well, you know, that's an equity multiple of two, right? I've doubled my right. equity. Yep. But that's all dependent on essentially what is the exit value so essentially what's the cap rate or the refinancing value, what I mm-hmm. call economic value, the mm-hmm. value the, the value based on which the maximum loan dollars amount will, will be considered. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, what's the uh, rent growth per year? That's a really important one that affects all these, these outputs, all these metrics that we talk yeah. about. What's the expense growth, expense growth and, and what are interest rates doing? Like those are all, very important things. And then finally, obviously, supply and demand in, in the actual transactional market, which will affect, you know, cap rates and values and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, that's a, that's a good overview. It's the, you know, you, you start with buying it right, right, right? So purchasing at the right price, and then it then it becomes about the the expectation. So how, you know, how well do you understand the market? How much right. are you expecting to get from your renovation from that bump, right? right. How much are you expecting rent to grow organically, right? How much are you expecting expenses to grow organically? One thing I, I often see people just, I think, undervalue from an expense standpoint are, are is insurance and taxes. I think those right. are kind of, when I, when I look at deals consistently in my mind, um, they're just underestimating how much those are going to grow over right. the next Right. Well, I mean, look at so. the last couple of years how right. how much insurance premiums have inflated. It's it's unbelievable. It's I mean, been an incredible amount. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, yeah, people have to understand that this is also good for for kind of you know preventing yourself from getting into the wrong deals. Yeah. It's also good to understanding that oh, I might get into that deal, and it's actually probably a better deal than what the syndicator is indicating. Because mm-hmm. let's take an example. I mean. The value of a multifamily property is essentially, if we boil it down and dumb it down, it's it's based off two things, right? It's based off net operating income. Mm-hmm. So rents minus expenses, what's left is net operating income divided by the cap rate, right? So what's the what's that that percentage cap rate that people are paying for in the market? Yeah. That's essentially what 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 a, a property is ba- what the value is based off. So Anything that affects NOI in the future and anything that affects cap rates in the future will determine realistically how, what, what the model looks like. So yeah. let's say if I'm a syndicator and I'm syndicating a property in, in, in Memphis and I project, you know, 
8% rent growth year over year. Well, if, if you're a passive investor, I, you know, like that's the first thing that you should be looking at. What's, what's the projected rent growth year over year? And then look yeah. at how is NOI growing year over year over projected inflation? Those are two simple things that you can look at. And in that yeah. NOI growth, obviously you look at expenses, you know, is, is, is the, is the model projecting growth in insurance costs in taxes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that, but then on the other, on the other side of things, like, for example, I, I live an hour south of Montreal, and then I spend a lot of time in Miami as well. But Montreal has been a market that has just gone, it's been on fire in the last like, five, 10 years, kind of like Phoenix and Arizona, very yeah. similar type of market. And Phoenix might be another good example, like Montreal is, if five years ago, as a passive investor, you were presented a syndication deal to get into as, a, as an LP, and the deal looked really good on paper, uh, and you look at the projections and the rent growth projections were, say, or the NOI projections were 3%, you know, essentially 1% over inflation or 1.5% over inflation. Sure. You know, rent growth in Phoenix over the last five years has probably been like eight or nine percent year on year, right? Right. Yeah. So that deal actually ended up even way better, right, than the deal that was presented, and that's where financial engineering, understanding financial engineering, is very important because I bet you there's a whole bunch of people that didn't buy properties saying the properties were too expensive in 2015 that's because right. they were only projecting two percent rent growth year over year even though they were in a market that was going to grow nine to 10% year over year. Right. Yeah. Now, that's a very dangerous thing because on the flip side of that, you see it, people, you know, project right. crazy rent growth or, or crazy cap rate compressions in, in just the wrong markets. Like in a, in a Cleveland, you know, where I see people, you know, say, Oh yeah, cap rates are going to drop down to like 5% in average. I'm like, you know, that's, yeah. I don't see the economic uh, variables indicating that that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. So it sounds, I mean, it sounds like what you're advocating is, is really a more, ed- a more educated approach to actually Absolutely. understand the markets. Um, and, and based on what's happened in the markets and history and what we expect to project the future versus using a lot of benchmarks that I, I think right. we're all accustomed to as kind of shortcuts. Rules right? of thumb yeah, and rules benchmarks of thumb. are very, very dangerous things. Mm-hmm. And I think like the, the best investment, any, whether you're on the GP side as, as an active investor, or if you're on the LP side as a passive investor, the best investment you can make in real estate investing is investing in your knowledge base. Like that's, it's, you know, the, the return on investment on that is, 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 you know, thousands yeah. of times better yes. than any return that you can make in the market itself. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great point. That's a great point. And and I think that's a, that's a good, I mean, that was a really good lesson. I think that gives, you gave people some golden nuggets there about things to look for and, and stuff to watch out for. The one thing I would add is, you know, where I see people, I think, get in trouble is you're talking about that, boiling that down to kind of NOI divided by cap rate. Yep. Based on that, that tells you how much the property should be worth. I think where people need to temper that is what's the reality of what things have actually sold for in, in that market historically. Because what you'll see is, okay, you know, the spreadsheet may tell you that the property should be worth 150,000 per unit based on where where you can go with rents and things. But, but if nothing in that market has ever sold above 90,000 or a hundred thousand, then there, there are some limitations in that. And, And that's where, like, that's where, when we're underwriting, that's kind of our final look, we're saying, 
okay, well, it says all this based on our projections, but as we compare to reality, we actually need to cut that exit price by maybe 20,000 right. just to temper expectations. And that's, that's kind right. of like our final check. And also include all the disposition costs that come with selling a property. Yeah. And, and then also if you're doing a refi rather than a, a, an actual sale of the property as your liquidity moment, the other thing you have to really consider this, a lot of people don't understand this is uh, financial, financial institutions like banks and, and credit unions and Fannie Mae's and Freddie Mac's and all these, they don't necessarily finance based off market value of the property. You know, there are some very important ratios, uh, you know, debt service coverage ratio, loan to value ratio. And these essentially create something that I call economic value, EV. And essentially financial institutions will in the majority of times finance a property based off the smaller amount between actual market value and economic value. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in layman's terms, people will often say, well, you know, I got, I only got, let's say the property is worth a million bucks. Uh, the bank is willing to finance, you know, a 75% LTV. So essentially normally you'd be able to get $750,000 in, in loan dollars. Right. Yeah. But uh, the banks finally capped it at 700,000. But that's because the debt service ratio was too weak because right. essentially banks have, have actuarial teams, actuaries, essentially creating these risk management models. And that creates something called economic value. So in this case, what the bank is essentially saying is, yeah, market value is a million. And then, you know, that's, that's, I'm sure market value and appraisal value is probably a million, yeah. but we're, us as, as a bank, our job is to take zero risk or as close to zero risk as possible. Right. So we're underwriting this at a $900,000 economic value property. Right. Therefore we'll, we'll lend you up to 75% loan to value based on the smaller number between the two. They'll never tell you this number. Right. But I found the, the I, I found the equation that, that, that bring that, that can help you know what that number is. So that's, yeah. that's something that's very important to understand as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's about the, I mean, at that point it becomes about the ability the probability that you can cover your debt payment, right? And that's what right, that debt exactly. service coverage ratio is, exactly. is how much cushion do you have between your income and, and what you have to pay monthly on you, your debt payment? You can payment. never underestimate leverage in real estate investing because it's, it's you know, it's it's a it's a 60 to 80% leveraged market, right? Mm -hmm. We're using a lot of debt. We're using a lot of leverage. So yeah. if you don't consider that, you're kind of, you know, forgetting a huge piece of the pie. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, this has been enlightening. I appreciate the conversation. Before I let you go, I, I want to talk a little bit about something else you're working on, though, because I think this will be fascinating, is this idea of real estate property tokenization yep. and, and using blockchain in real estate. So tell us what you're working on there. Well, it, it's still in its very nascent stages. Blockchain technology in a whole is very nascent. Obviously, a lot of people know about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and all this stuff, which is... Yep. It, it's that's all based off of blockchain technology, but that's not what blockchain technology is. Right. Blockchain technology, the easiest way to understand it is like, no one talks about cloud anymore. Remember like 10, 15, 20 years back, everyone talked about like cloud, cloud computing. No one uses that word anymore, even though we're all in the cloud using Dropbox and Drive and stuff like right. that. So blockchain is just kind of the, the evolution of the transfer of, of value through the internet. Uh, it's a ledger technology, but... The idea here is to be able to essentially, uh, you know, in, in the goal of democratizing the access to real estate investing, 
what I want to be able to do is create a NASDAQ of real estate investing. So to be able to say, rather than just have to kind of find a syndicator here and there or, or mm-hmm. go on these crowdfunding platforms, I'd like to create a market where we have all these syndicators and companies and, and, you know, and, and firms, and you can actually just go and buy shares in either a property and either a fund or a group of properties. And then you have liquidity as well, because for example, yeah. crowdfunding is kind of the first step towards that. Yeah. But with crowdfunding, the prob- problem is that you have no liquidity. So you're not really, you're not really, I mean, because the, the two major obstacles to real estate investing, there the are many obstacles, but the two major ones or the, the weaknesses of real estate investing, especially multifamily and commercial is number one, access to the market. You need a lot of money, right? Right. To buy a 24 unit property, you need maybe half a million dollars in equity, right? Not everyone has that. Uh, to buy a small six unit property in most you know, metro areas, you're gonna need at least 100,000 to $150,000 in down payment, which is a lot, of, a lot of money to put aside and a lot of, you know, to just put your eggs in the same basket essentially, right? Because you have right. no diversification whatsoever. So access to the market's very expensive. And then on the second part of that is, once you put that 100,000 to your six unit property or 500,000 to a 24 unit property, or maybe you've invested into a syndication, that that money's frozen. Like if 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 you have a rainy day or for some reason or you need to get out of that, that's that's stuck in there. You can't get out of that, or any of your gains won't be realized for you know five to six to seven to ten years, right? Right. So that that's kind of where I want to go with that. Um, we're we're really taking our time to build a, a solid foundation foundation in technology. A lot of people have have already come out with various projects in real estate tokenization and blockchain because a lot of people kind of adhere to the first mover advantage, which I just don't believe in, in technology. And I think we're probably still a good 10 years out, maybe even 15 before like blockchain is mature enough. And, and people are, are, are everyday average people are, are, are happy using that technology. But that yeah. the idea is essentially to be able to say, well, if you can invest in a tech company and buy shares and have liquidity, well, why wouldn't you be able to do that with, you know, a ground up construction of a, hundred unit property in Indianapolis or, you know, a portfolio of 10 properties in Miami. Right. Right. Yeah. So the idea of this, again, like you said, democratization of real estate, you're creating, you want to create a secondary market, right. Where you can actually trade these deals. Like you would trade stocks. Right. And and also in doing that, provide liquidity, you know, uh, the ability to, to sell your shares to someone else, right. at, At your preferred time. Now, extremely interesting. I think there, that's a huge idea. I think there's a lot there. And I think that will make real estate more accessible for, pe- for people, which will ultimately Absolutely. improve the financial lives of a lot of folks. So more power to you, man. That's awesome. Thanks a so, lot. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, we wanna, I want to move on to our keys to success. I've got a few questions I want to ask you, Nikolai. What is the one question that every investor should ask their deal sponsor? Would you, how, would you, would you put your money into this deal? Yeah. Would you, or maybe like, are you right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, uh, in both cases, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I think question one, a and one B and you know, I can understand that a lot of people maybe don't have the equity to put money in every single deal they do, mm-hmm. but you know, that's the first thing that I'd ask. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an investor myself. I was a passive investor uh, for, for, for most of my adult life up until mm-hmm. about, a year and a half ago. And then a year and a half ago, I got this, I don't know, I woke up one morning and decided to buy a couple of properties and 
I've actually purchased 30 apartment buildings in a year and a half with, with two of my buddies with just our own money. Wow. Um, and I've slowly now started to accept a couple of friends and, and family as, 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 as LPs in some of our deals or in our JVs. Mm-hmm. And every time I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I tell them like, Hey, you know, if I, I'd be willing to put this same amount into the deal as well, I'm not going to put it into this deal because I put it into that one or whatever, you right. know, there are different reasons why, but I would be willing to do it. And, you know, I'm willing to, you know, to swear on my, on my kids that I'd be willing to do that. I think that's a very important uh, question to ask. And you're able to see like how, what is the level of conviction of, of that deal sponsor uh, mm-hmm. by asking that question? Yeah, very good. What are you most proud of in your career? Uh, I went bankrupt when I was 25. So I started my first, I, I retired from professional hockey at 22 and uh, started, I, I didn't realize I started a company, but I, I did start a company. I actually started two companies. So I had started a, uh, uh, I'd started a, a private health company where we had these clinics that were a mix of, of preventive medicine clinics and high performance gyms. So mixed into one. Um, and, uh, I also started a real estate hockey agency where we repped hockey players. Uh, my first company within three and a half years grew. Like we had almost a hundred employees. Uh, we were in three countries opening up in, in Paris and Sao Paulo and Brazil. And I just lost control of the company because I didn't really know what I was doing. I was 25. I'd never set out to be an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. uh, you know, made a bad deal with a, a, an older partner who was supposed to be a, a mentor in the business world for me and ended up kind of letting me out to dry and essentially went from, you know, having nothing at 22 to 25 to being essentially a millionaire on paper. And then at 26 being homeless. And then, you know, just within probably about four to six months, got right back up and came, and came back stronger. And, and ever since that, the last, you know, 10 to 20, 20, 10 to 12 years of my life have just, you know, been, you know, 10 X the success I had prior to that. So being able to fall as hard and get up even harder for me is the thing that I'm, I'm the proudest of. And I think it, you know, it, it shows resiliency. It shows passion and shows that you can make mistakes and learn from your mistakes, but that you're also responsible, not a victim. I think that's the key to success in anything that we do in life. Absolutely. I think that's a great message. And what book should everybody read? Man, <laughs> I have a, I have a couple here. Uh, I have probably a couple, probably a thousand in my house. So many great books, but I think, uh, you know, I, I bet a lot of people here talk about real estate books and, you know, there's some great real estate books and, you know, uh, but I think they're, they're, I think personal development and what you do with your mind and your spirituality is very important. I think any of the Wayne Dyer books, uh, who's passed away now, uh, are very, very important books. One that really touched me was, insp- it's called Inspiration, mm. uh, as well as way back when the seven, uh, seven spiritual laws, I think, of Deepak Chopra, uh, mm. really good book. And, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of other books, obviously, uh, newer books like Tribe of Mentors by Tim Ferriss. I mean, I could probably give you a yeah. list of 100 books. I, I, I wouldn't be able to put my finger on one. Just yeah. on one. They're just too well, you've given us some good ones to start yeah. with. <laughs> good place to just start. So many, so many great books. One that really, really is great is The Untethered Soul. Yes. Uh, that, that's, a, that's an amazing book. Oh, awesome. Well, we, we got some good places to start. We'll yeah. come back to you once we get through those. Awesome. 
And then lastly, what is your number one key to success? Number one key to success, I think, is is having faith, probably. You know, I think I think faith is extremely important. Uh, believing in yourself, believing in what you're doing, and essentially believing in something greater than yourself, kind of, you know, in the background of that. Whether you're what you know, whether your faith is is, you know, is is whether you're Catholic or Protestant or whatever your faith is, I think faith is an extremely important thing to have. And I think it's a key because that's what allows you to kind of, you know, not, not become a victim and, and you know, ha- have belief and vision. And I think without belief and vision, you, you can't achieve anything. Yeah. That, fantastic advice, Nikolai. And again, thanks for coming on the show. Um, we talked about a lot of different things today. Um, a couple takeaways. I, I think folks need to probably go back and re-listen to like the first half of the show, especially when we're getting nitty gritty into some of those things that you need to be understanding and looking out for as, as you're evaluating deals and underwriting deals and, and, and talking with sponsors, right? Uh, some, some golden nuggets there. And uh, Nikolai, if folks want to get a hold of you, uh, how can they learn more about what you're doing? I'm pretty active on Facebook, so you can find me on Facebook, Nikolai Ray. There aren't there, there aren't many of us, <laughs> just as I'm sure there aren't too many Kent Ritters. So uh, <laughs> there's not. That's how I was able to claim KentRitter.com. Yeah, exactly. Not, not a whole lot of us. <laughs> exactly. So I'm pretty sure Nikolai Ray. I'm the one and only. So Facebook, very active on LinkedIn. A lot less active on Instagram. I'm not into the whole kind of showing off kind of kind of world, but I, I am there. And uh, as as well, uh, the Emrex College. You can find us on. Uh, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and as well as on YouTube. We're just starting to put on more and more stuff in English because obviously we've been very, very active over the last five years in French. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a huge following. Um, and we're just going to try and bring that even more to, to, to the U.S. and to, to, to the English part of Canada as well. That's awesome. Well, yeah, we'll make sure all that's listed below so folks can go down and click and get a hold of you. And again, Nikolai, Ray, thanks for being here today and adding so much value. And uh, hope to talk soon. Thanks a lot, Ken. It was a, a lot of fun and you did a great job. So uh, I appreciate anytime it. Anytime you want me back, we can always go deeper into, into any type of subject that you want. So That sounds great, man. I'll take you up on it. Awesome. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit kentritter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.